interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the West Star Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of Westar scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. I'm Matthew Baker, and this is Interrupted. In this episode, you'll hear a talk recently given by Austin Adkinson titled, Making Mary a Man, Going Beyond Binaries with the Gospel of Thomas. In addition to being a member of Westar's Praxis Forum, Austin is a UMC pastor in Ellensburg, Washington. He's an educator, a social justice advocate, and has been part of the emerging leadership of what's become the United Methodist Queer Clergy Caucus, which is a bit of a mouthful. We'll link to that and more info on Austin, as well as the Westar's Praxis Forum in the show notes. The talk was given as a part of the Praxis Forum's monthly speaker series. I don't want to say too much about it, but I will just say Austin leverages reading from the Gospel of Thomas to good effect, I think. So anyway, the first voice you will hear will be that of Colin Glavik. Glavik? I'm not sure how to say that. I apologize who is an author and also a Praxis Forum member. Colin hosted the event, and you'll hear quickly hands it over to Austin. I think that's all I have to say about that. If you like the show, subscribe, leave a review. You can find us at westarinterrupted.com. All right, here is Austin Adkinson. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another instance of our speaker series. This is hosted by Praxis. This event is themed around pride because it's Pride Month, and I am happy to introduce to you Reverend Austin Atkinson, who is a UMC pastor who's been with the Praxis Forum before it was Praxis, before we were known as uh, the youth group, but we try not to talk about those days too much now. We're known as Praxis now. And uh, Austin is working for full inclusion of LGBTQIA plus folks in the UMC, and they also work with intersectional queer liberation on a broader scale. Austin, it's awesome to see you again. Awesome to have you as our speaker of the month. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. And uh, I'm really excited. I heard a rumor that you're throwing down a little Gospel of Thomas. Not sure if that's true or not, but I can't wait to see what you come up with. All right. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I probably wouldn't have said yes if I'd realized that I would be moving on the week of this presentation. Oh, no. I said yes well, a few you. months ago. <laughs> thank you. Um, but I'm a United Methodist pastor and we get moved around and uh, I'll be starting at a new church in July and I'm in the midst of packing. Oh, the joys of preparing a presentation in the middle of changing jobs and and moving uh, while most of my resources are boxed up. So I hope that uh, those who are here listening Today will forgive me if my citations aren't as precise as they maybe could have been. Now that I've lowered the expectations, let's give it a go. So one of the biggest critiques I've heard of liberal churches outreach to the LGBTQIA plus community is that churches typically mean the L and the G pretty sincerely. 
but they really don't know what to do with the BTQIA and especially not the identities we don't yet have a name for. Pride is a protest about making room for everyone to be their authentic self. And in progressive Christian spaces, that would mean being who God made you to be. And the church, more than anyone, has a lot of catching up to do, even progressive churches. So that being said, I'm a queer pastor. My orientation is queer. The language I use for my gender in United Methodist spaces is genderqueer. Uh, but in spaces where I don't have to be so circumspect, I say gender fuck. My gender is disruptive to normativity. I use they and he pronouns because I recognize that my body type still affords me unearned privileges. But in the spirit of pride, please refer to me tonight in terms of they, them, theirs. Thank you, Colin, for honoring my pronouns. But enough about me. We're talking about making room for everyone to be their God-given self. In that spirit, I'm going to center my pride talk around breaking binaries. And the Gospel of Thomas is a great place to start. So we'll start in the ancient world and we'll later shift to the dynamics of pride and intersections with other protest movements in the present. So there's this funny little saying tagged on at the end of the Gospel of Thomas. It's known as Logion or saying 114, which goes like this in the only single extant manuscript of Thomas available to us. Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, look, I will guide her and make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter into the domain of heaven. Let me first point out that Logion 114 is almost certainly a later addition to Thomas than uh, the earliest versions, which we don't have copies of. When the Jesus Seminar looked uh, at the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas and compared them to what they thought the historical Jesus would have said, this was one of the ones that certainly got black marbled, as in they don't think it was the historical Jesus. And I and others, including uh, Stephen Davies, one of the current West Star scholars and back at the Jesus Seminar in the day, considers this one to be tacked on afterward, uh, particularly because it disrupts the symmetry uh, that the likely final saying 113 has with the introductory sayings and does not feel like the capstone to bring a collection of sayings to a close. If you want to look at that more closely, compare saying 113 later with saying three and the ways they highlight that the kingdom of God or whatever language you want to use to highlight Jesus's flip of the colonial script and his reappropriation of the language of empire. Further, Logion 114 is inconsistent with the other more fluid ways of thinking in the larger text. In fact, the fluid ways the text celebrates. The thinking that informs Peter's comments in this exchange is stuck in the binary, also stuck in male supremacy and misogyny. To be fair, Peter's statement that women don't deserve life is most likely in reference to eternal life or the domain of heaven as the Jesus Seminar Scholar version of Thomas translates the language of empire. Doesn't seem he's actually saying that women should be killed off but it's still a misogynistic statement. Here, as usual, Peter gets to be the straw man representation of misogyny in the early Jesus movement texts that highlight Mary as a teacher, just as Mary gets diminished or vilified in texts that highlight Peter. You can see Levi's rebuke of Peter in the Gospel of Mary calling, calling Peter a hothead. In contemporary parlance, he might just say, hey, Peter, stop being such a douche. 
I've recently been struck by the notion that given the presumed celibacy of Jesus and the first disciples, how might Peter fit into the current classification of self-described incels or involuntary celibates? I say all of this to say the slogan is very much representative of the dynamics of the early Jesus movements, even if it is putting words in Jesus's mouth. But what does Jesus say? To our postmodern fourth wave feminist sensibilities, this is an insulting approach to inclusion, but it's a ham-handed second or third century effort to fit female leadership into the dominant worldview of the time, a worldview where female represented the worldly, the earthy, mother nature elements, and the male represented spiritual, heady, above the base elements of the world, or at least was called to be so. Think of Paul's epistles and the binary of flesh and spirit invoked there. Another chunk of rhetoric that could really use some grace-filled reinterpretation these days, acknowledging the beauty of the in-between and the now and the not yet. I could quote Hippolytus and others to provide examples, but I'll spare you that for now. This was the language of the time, and the words that are being put into Jesus's mouth are reflective of that. But now, if we really try to parse Jesus's words here in 114, we see the binary break open. Take a closer look at the language about what he says he will do for Mary. Look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. That's some interesting language there, resembling you males. Subtranslations say, like you males. The Coptic word in question here is, I believe that's how it's pronounced, and I won't pretend to have enough translation skills to weigh in on which of these translations is more accurate, the like or the resembling. Either way, there's some kind of nuance here suggesting that despite the initial statement of I will guide her to make her male, Jesus is saying that what Mary will become is not exactly male in the way Peter might be thinking. Richard Valentasis has an interesting take that considers Jesus transcending the gender binary. Not that he had the queer vocabulary in the 90s to call Jesus gender nonconforming or non-binary or NB or gender queer or gender fuck, but I digress. He says Jesus is a mystagogue, a sort of third gender. He highlights the word choice of you males instead of us males, which would include himself in Peter's classification. You males, not us males. You, not we. He is disrupting Peter's understanding of male. Or shall I say, they are disrupting Peter's understanding. This would suggest Jesus himself is not really male in the sense that Peter thinks of masculinity, similar to what he says he will do for Mary. Westar scholar Ali Katusit's research into early Catholic depictions of a feminine Jesus fits in nicely here as does some of the iconography portraying Jesus birthing the church from one of the wounds from the cross in a rather vulvarific fashion. I'll say that if you haven't had the joy of hearing Ali's research, check back to some of the reports from Westar's Christianity Seminar or other publications that have also caught media attention. Now that I've disrupted what you thought you knew about Jesus's gender identity, we can set aside the divisive framework surrounding what is coming out of Jesus's mouth in this Logion. It's a promise to transform Mary so that she too may become a living spirit. And not even Paul could argue with that. 
The goal is to transcend the problems of the world and to live into God's kingdom come. And that is what I believe is at the heart of this late addition to Thomas, even though it does take quite a bit of unpacking. Earlier, I alluded to the more fluid or non-binary approach to identity that flows through the Gospel of Thomas. So here are a few examples. Logan 22 says, Jesus saw some babies nursing. He said to his disciples, these nursing babies are like those who enter the domain. They said to him, then shall we enter the domain as babies? Jesus said to them, when you make the two into one, and when you make the inner like the outer and the outer like the inner and the upper like the lower, when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male will no longer be male nor the female be female, when you make eyes in place of an eye, a hand in place of a hand, a foot in place of a foot, an image in place of an image, then you will enter. So the rejection of binary is not just limited to gender here, but the gender non-binary is explicitly there. The ideal that the male will not be male nor the female be female, it's right there. So the reference to making two into one is clearly not a reference to matrimony. It's about finding the balance between seeming contradictions. The idea of two into one also reinforces the Thomasian take on Jesus's famous words about the first being last and the last being first in a fashion that jives with the non-binary spirit of the Gospel of Thomas. In Logion 4, Jesus says, the person old in days won't hesitate to ask a little child seven days old about the place of life, and that person will live. For many of the first will be last and will become a single one. When trying to explain how the first and last can be one, I like to quote my father, who posted on social media after finishing a half marathon about a decade ago, I just finished two half marathons, my first and my last. Now, my father is a liar and a glutton for punishment, and he likes to run with my brother, so he did, in fact, actually do it again. We can also look at this first and last being one in the words of Tom Lehrer, who satirically sang about the potential of nuclear holocaust during the Cold War. We'll all go together when we go, Tom Lehrer sang. Or in a more positive approach, when we are one, we'll all cross the finish line together. Logan 18 is another example. The disciples said to Jesus, tell us how will our end come? Jesus said, have you found the beginning then that you are looking for the end? You see the end will be where the beginning is. Congratulations to those who stand at the beginning. That one will know the end and will not taste death. Jesus and Thomas does not seem to be about anyone being at any one fixed place, but how we move and breathe with the Spirit in the midst of whatever's happening around us. With that, I'd like to take us now and move into this century. Binary thinking extends beyond gender. 
We see this in negative developments in recent Pride celebrations. As acceptance of lesbians and gay men increases, the spirit of resistance at the origins of Pride gets watered down. And in some cases, more assimilationist-minded queer folks thinking their path is the only way forward. This my way is right and therefore you must be wrong is another way that the binaries show up in our lives that needs to be broken. Pride is a protest at its heart, originally. And we've had some linguistic shifts and pride sometimes sounds and feels more like parties and parades instead of a march. I organized United Methodists to march in the New York City Pride March for many years and the organizers of the Pride March in New York City were very clear that this was not a parade. It was a march in spirit with the riots that happened in front of the Stonewall Inn decades before. It was about continuing to fight and push for expanded rights, rights that still aren't fully realized, not just a celebration of the successes that have already happened. But somewhere along the way in many places, riots shifted into marches commemorating the riots, and then they're called parades and parties. But still in all of it is a spirit of celebration pushing beyond and imagining what can be. But as we've shifted more to celebration than protest, pride starts to become a little bit more mainstream and that was never at the heart of what it should be. One of the hot questions in queer communities this year is about whether kink, visible kink belongs at pride. There are kids there, some say. But pride was never meant to be about acting in an acceptable manner. It's about being your authentic self and not listening to the haters. It's about living fully and expressively in carved out spaces to make room for what others exclude. You can't tame pride. And there will be people in leather and puppy outfits at pride all over the place. People being their authentic selves and not listening to the haters. But as more and more privileged queer folks gain acceptance in the wider community, and the more the movement for queer equality gains, pride begins to look like a more colorful version of mainstream US culture. And one of the big critiques that also has been happening in recent years is a critique of what queers call rainbow capitalism, where corporations sponsor the floats. Corporations that in some cases don't even extend full rights to all of their own employees. But they can slap it on and use it as part of their advertising budget to the target audience that they know it's safe to message that way in. And pride begins to look more like a colorful version of mainstream US culture. But at its heart, there will be always those who were there living out their fullest authentic selves. We've talked about the gospel of Thomas and all becoming one. But becoming one does not mean homogeneity. One of the great things that I love about the New York City Pride March, having marched in it a number of times, it starts in Midtown. And there's a good crowd there with the wide sidewalks. And there are people all along the way watching and cheering, celebrating people being who they are. But as the march moves in toward the village, ever closer to Christopher Street and the Stonewall Inn, it almost becomes a reverse parade. I know, I know I said it's not a parade, but I'm also a non-binary thinker. And there is spectacle all around as the march weaves through the village. 
Your spectacle is the party on the sidewalks, in the balconies and on the rooftops. It's impossible to tell at that point who is watching whom. Every kind of queer identity imaginable is there in community on display together as one, even if a fleeting moment, first and last as one. Those who are in the barricades, officially part of the march, those pressed up against the barricades because the party is too big to be contained, and those hopping in and out of the sidewalks and the march itself. Pride does look like a party now, but we also must remember that the first pride was not scheduled. It was a riot lashing out at police and societies at large for not allowing people to live as God made them to be in the fullness of life intended for all. You see on the screen images of Marsha P. Johnson in the middle, Stormy DeLarvery on the left, and Sylvia Rivera on the right. They and other trans women and butch lesbians sacrificing themselves for the good of the whole queer community, fighting back instead of taking the abuse of the New York Police Department one more time. Marsha is often credited as throwing the first brick, but other sources say Sylvia and others say Stormy. Stormy, a butch black lesbian who's been overshadowed, one of the identities in the mix of binary and the spectrum in between. We don't know who actually fought back first, and none of these three did it alone. It takes a movement to make change on this scale, and all of us should be a part of it. They fought back against the police that enforced the wider society's restrictions and even death for queer folks. This brings us to the current heated debates about police presence at Pride events. Whether it's their being there as some semblance of security, or whether it's queer officers marching as a group within the larger event, this topic is heated now as it should be. And I'm not going to give an answer here tonight, but that is a tension that is at the heart of almost every Pride event that you'll see this year. So last summer when Pride events were canceled, there was a beautiful synchronicity as folks took to the streets anyway, protesting police brutality against people of color last June. And at times defending the choices of activists who took radical approaches to the police backlash. The Jesus of Thomas also says in saying 10, I have cast fire upon the world and look, I'm guarding it until it blazes. Change does not come easy. Change takes a fight. Change takes pushing back. If you'd like to hear more of my thoughts on the ways that queer folks did and didn't show up for Black Lives Matter protests, look back for my Westar blog post from the topic from last June. This summer so far has been relatively quiet, but the need for liberation is still ever present. Movements and uprisings have their ebbs and flows. Last summer's uprising, where did the energy go? It's dissipated and seeing the change that is needed feels much further off than it did last summer. The openly hostile White House administration was replaced and George Floyd was converted to a martyr. Derek Chauvin was convicted, but the oppression is systemic and unending. Part of me wonders if we would be better off if there had been another not guilty verdict as is usually the case with police brutality. Would the passion for justice still be flaming today. 
And beyond all of that, Breonna Taylor got no justice, as did many others whose names are not as prominent. And I could go down a path about misogynoir and why Breonna Taylor didn't get the same level of outcry, but there's not enough time, I'm afraid. There are too many problems in the world to be able to address them at any one time. And part of this spirit of the Gospel of Thomas, I believe, is about finding the ways to see the connections between all of them so that it's always at the front of our mind, no matter what is pulling our attention at the moment. It seems like since January, we've been breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief, taking a deep breath. And I hope it's because we're preparing for more in the future. But I fear it's complacency bringing itself back again. Regardless of which party is in power, the system isn't getting fixed. If it's even possible that police reform can happen, the contradictions in the system will hit a breaking point again, and protests will erupt again. Maybe it will be about the injustices against the Latinx community next, or Asians and Pacific Islanders, or others whose struggles are too many to name, but nonetheless wrapped up in the powerful taking advantage of those without power. Mass protests will erupt again. They will not fit the sensibilities of the privileged and anyone in the U.S. should think about how we got our independence in part because of property destruction in Boston Harbor before criticizing broken windows and looting. Queer folks who have gained much privilege in recent decades should remind themselves of the bricks thrown at Stonewall before criticizing how other people seek their own liberation. And really, we should all roll up our sleeves and help because all of our oppressions are intertwined. If we really are to shed the binaries and find our oneness with God and each other, we will have to see the intersections of our oppressions. We will realize that none of us is at a fixed point. We will realize that the spectrum of identities is not just a straight line between two polar opposites. It's a beautiful Venn diagram where we unite at the core. It's a beautiful Venn diagram where we unite at the core where we each find ourselves with our own individual God-given expressions of human life. The kingdom of God is indeed at hand, as Jesus says, even in the canonical gospels. The kingdom of God is indeed at hand if we have the courage to break the binaries and truly live. The first and the last is one. Happy Pride, y'all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the West Art Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the West Art Institute or become a member, visit westartinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.